Malcolm Honeline is exec- executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Friday mornings for the weekly update. Mr. Honeline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. Good way to start off the new year. Oh. We wish everybody a, a healthy year that it will be somewhat different from the one that we just left. God willing. Is it already feeling different, Malcolm? Is it feeling different to you in these first eight hours of the new year? Yeah, I'm pretty numb, so I don't know. But uh, <laughs> it was what it was early to determine. One of those very exciting New Year's Eves, it sounds like. <laughs> oh yeah, a very exciting week for Jonathan Pollard and his wife. They land in Israel. Very interesting uh, uh, episode. Very interesting uh, end to this uh, uh, decades-long saga. The private plane being greeted by the prime minister on the tarmac, etc., etc., watching Pollard kiss the ground of Israel, reminding us not to take Israel for granted. All of this during a time when we are so disconnected physically from the Holy Land. What did you think of the episode as you watched Jonathan Pollard being welcomed by the prime minister of Israel? Should have gotten a lift on the plane. <laughs> I'll <lie. laughs> I'll have a Um Look, I think it, it's uh, he's been through uh, a quiet period now uh, since his release. He abided by everything that he was supposed to do. Uh, he, you know, his wife has been ill. He served longer than anybody for crime against uh, involving a friendly nation. Way disproportionate. Even something um, a former Under Secretary of Defense said this week, acknowledged this week, as many have all along. So I hope now he'll be able to live out his life quietly in Israel and with his wife in good health. You know, not not to not to you know blow this out of proportion, um, you know, but someone like yourself must have had every one of the episodes where you stood with presidents of the United States and think about how many presidents we've had since the mid '80s, presidents of the United States, influential people in Washington in general. I don't know, members of the Senate and the United States House of Representatives, maybe secretaries of state, right? They could certainly have a big part uh, in the say of what to do with Pollard. Probably all those encounters where, you know, tens if not hundreds of them that you had over these decades must have come back into your thoughts as you're seeing him land in Israel. We had countless meetings uh, and entreaties to people of every kind, religious leaders, international figures. I talked to at least uh, five presidents and four presidents about it. Wow. I didn't even think of of the international leaders part. There were people from other countries that you spoke to about it. Well, moral leaders, religious leaders, others who weighed in. Um, You know, in the beginning it was very difficult. There were even leaders of the Jewish community who, who called for his incarceration and and incarceration was inevitable, right. um, and we acknowledged that the, the crime that was committed. But the question is proportionality, and you know the the the, the distinction that somebody who could spy for Russia or China and do uh, much more damage, and that a lot of the charges that were made against him at the time, in terms of other ramifications, were not borne out. Um, but you know now it's behind us. There were presidents, you know, one president in particular, you could not raise this issue with. Who was a friend, who was friendly, but oh, this was the one issue that was sort of taboo. Didn't want to hear about it. Yeah, I mean, it made him angry, and uh, and he did not get angry when we fought with him over many other issues. 
And there's another president who, who made a promise to me about it, uh, that it would be part of the year-end considerations, uh, pardon considerations. And then he apologized to me later, saying that it that five out of the five agencies they consulted said no. Unbelievable. Um, the context of what happened this week with him is interesting because I wonder, as I'm sure you did, if not for COVID, would they have been able to keep this, you know, flight under wraps and and do it with the, you know, the limited number of people that we saw this week? In other words, if not for COVID, do you think there would have been a purposeful uh, attempt to make sure still nobody knew about it. They didn't want any massive celebrations with thousands of people greeting him in Tel Aviv. I do not think that that, I think that was one of the considerations. I do not think that they wanted a massive demonstration. Uh, You know, it can have negative repercussions here. And, uh, you know, in his wife's uh, condition after a long flight, um, I think, you know, the that uh, it would not have been perhaps even wise to, to have that kind of a reception at the airport tonight. And to uh, and, and I frankly don't know that that's what Pollard at this point, that he would want it. I think he, he mm-hmm. I know that he said to me when I went to visit him in prison and other times that all he wanted to do was go and live quietly and live his life out in Israel. And now at least his, uh, his dream will be fulfilled. And often, too often, it's when it's too late. So thank God that... Uh, that it became possible, and certainly through the uh, commutation and the uh, cooperation of the administration. So now in retrospect, I know because of COVID this likely won't happen, but if your children and grandchildren were at the Shabbos table tonight, what would you say? Would you say he's a hero? How would you describe his his contribution or the danger in which he put the state of Israel? How would you classify him historically now as you look back? It's a good question. It's, it's still, there are things that are, um, it's a lengthy discussion. It's not, it's not a yes or no answer. It's not a, I think, I think that this is kind of discussion that has been held. There have been thousands of uh, discussions um, in every forum of the Jewish community about it. So I think, as I said, I think now is the time to put it behind us and to let him um, and his wife live their lives in uh, in harmony and in peace and hopefully good health. All right, and uh, with the intention of putting it behind us, I will ask you only one more question, but I think this is a really important one. Um, when one sees, especially the younger people in this audience who are really used to tremendous security cooperation between the United States and Israel, in fact, over the last couple of decades, you've described for us that no matter what's going on, even during the most challenging political times right obama administration to be you know obvious about it uh still the about the level of cooperation between israel and the united states when it came to security matters uh was uh you know was very high uh with that in mind some younger people especially might be saying why on earth would pollard think or anybody think that there was a reason to give information to israel behind the back of the United States. Wasn't there a relationship then as well that could be described as very cooperative and there was no reason for him to even act this way? How would you answer that? Well, there are volumes written on it, so it's not a question, and, and we have the absolute truth in, in some regards that we know they, the administrations did not share everything with Israel. 
And is, is that different today, by the way? Like, would you say that's likely different today, or it's hard to say? Well, the, well, we don't we don't know what we don't know. So right. that that is speculative. But you know, information flows today are very different. But Israel does not spy and has not spied on engaging in espionage in the United States. Although the United States did engage in espionage in Israel, and um, you know, countries every country spies on every other country, and now you do it by satellite. You don't need agents. Um, it did a lot of harm. There was a long period where where there were repercussions, both for some Jewish employees and for for others. And in the terms of uh, intelligence cooperation, uh, some of the stories I know personally are not true about repercussions, and some of them are certainly true. Uh, some worse than what the public knows about. Um, and you know, there are people who still claim that there's a lingering effect uh, from it, but. You know, it, there's a lot of hypocrisy in it, and the fact that uh, you know the United States was engaged in that spionage on Israel as well. The um, uh, so, you know, th- these are things that uh, 50, when Pollard hopefully can write his own memoirs or something and clarify what you know what his, his perspective on this is. But you know, we've seen the people like Ellie Rubenstein, who's one of highly respected former Supreme Court justice, and other was the one who didn't let him back into the embassy. Right. You had a lot of people who were involved who were very credible and very uh, serious officials of Israel. Others who've used uh, not only harsh rhetoric, but, but made the case about this on both sides. So, you know, the, the, to rehash it and re-debate it right now, we should not spy on each other at it, the it cost to U.S.-Israel relationship was 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 deep at the time, and it became an excuse for those who were looking for one. Uh, and I don't think it creates anti-Semites. It gave anti-Semites and anti-Israel people certainly a pretext to carry on a campaign uh, as they have, not only as they did, but as they have uh, using this. And th- this is, uh, you know, I think a lot of lessons were learned, and some of the modus operandi were changed because of it. His greatest victory may be what happened this week, because it's no secret that you know prison and American officials just expected him to die. Frankly, in the conditions that he had in prison, we know how many times he was ill. Well, he had a life sentence, and and you know the guy served thirty years. I mean, right. this is unprecedented. And I went to visit him in prison, and there was no bitterness, there was no um, uh, recriminations. He was. It was astonishing. And to see how current he was with everything that was going on was simply amazing. I have no idea how he could have gotten, you know, the information in the way that he was able to to convey to us in our discussion. Um, and you know, he was. Uh, it, it was. It, it took us aback at first. The first time we went um, to Butler and to to visit him in the in the prison itself. It's also a shocking experience because the first time I was ever in a prison when, you know, you hear the clang of that door and everything slams behind you and you have to take, you can't even have a pencil with you or anything. <laughs> yeah, I've been there and done that. <laughs> yeah, not, not a, yeah, really. Pretty, I mean, I, as, it, as a visitor, I don't want you to be concerned. <laughs> as a visitor. We know, we know the story. But okay. <laughs> but we, we won't talk about it on the air. But yes, imagine after a visitor, you go through that harrowing experience. Imagine what he was going through, my gosh. Right. 
and that he survived just amazing. And I think that may be the ultimate victory for him that he's now in the state of Israel. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NahumSegal.com and the NahumSegal Network. And, of course, in the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of major American Jewish organizations. Why is Israel being cited for its efficiency when it comes to vaccine distribution? Why are they doing this so well? Well, right now, you know, anybody who's done anything well in this uh, pandemic is being cited because, and it's so disproportionate, the number and how fast they were able to inoculate Israelis. Um, And I think the Army Patrol and others, this is really a... Testament, you know, the beginning, they, they also handed it well, and then the situation deteriorated and continues to. I mean, it's still escalating numbers and still very troubling, but they are making real progress with the inoculations. There is talk that they're going to have to hold off because they were too successful. They want to make sure that they have enough for the second shot for the groups that wow, got it. Wow, I didn't realize that. And that wow. they may hold off for the next two weeks, and then there's wow. talk that they've got uh, from, I think, Moderna, an emergency shipment because they were using Pfizer uh, and their others, AstraZeneca is coming online, which is starting to use in Great Britain, but it doesn't appear to be as effective as the other two. Uh, there are other countries that are using Chinese uh, and the, the Russian uh, originated. Israel does not seem to be using those. So the um, whether they can keep up this pattern, but it's uh, it, you know, it was highly efficient. And as you know, when, very rare that they give the government or even Israel generally credit for, for something. Yeah. But I, this is certainly to their credit. And I know people went and they told me that they waited five minutes, ten minutes, half an hour at most. But most said that they just went. There were it was a very efficient setup, and they got their shots and left. Yeah, their method of distribution is being cited and being lauded. And um, <laughs> some of the colonists who can't stand Bibi are actually giving him props because apparently both the uh, the organizational aspect that he's led regarding the distribution and also the fact that he went out and purchased the number of vaccines they did. Apparently, Israel paid a higher price in other countries, but even Bibi's critics are saying, who cares if it gets us back to normalcy as soon as possible? And he did it right away. If you notice, he negotiated with uh, all of these companies' uh, deals. Uh, many countries now are trying to catch up, and they, of course, have to get online because it's a little bit how much you can produce at one time, yeah. even though I think it's it's truly incredible. Uh, and this, I think, uh, Operation War Street and others, uh, you know, remember, we gave billions of dollars to these companies, but the fact is now we're seeing that they are producing it at truly remarkable rates. I mean, it's, it's astonishing to see you know, how many millions and millions of shots are being provided, all, and, and global, it's not just uh, in the United States. So we have to step it up here. We have to find a way to to, to get beyond the first report, responders who should get it first, and all of the, of the others, the hospital workers, uh, the elderly, um, and then get it to people, because the quicker we get to uh, that threshold, but, but then now they're saying it has to be a 90% threshold to really impact yeah, who knows what the real number is, but it does, it does seem to keep going up. And, and sure. we don't know what the long-term impact, we don't know how long it will last. We don't know so many things. You see people now getting it the second time. You see people's uh, antibodies going down, people's antibodies going up. I mean, we still so much about this virus that we don't know. 
And, of course, every time I visit Jewish neighborhoods or noticeably Jewish neighborhoods, no one's wearing a mask. And in some neighborhoods, including someone who spoke to me yesterday from Borough Park and someone who spoke to me yesterday from Lakewood, in some neighborhoods they don't realize, the residents, what kind of uptick is, is going on now in their surroundings. And people just don't take it seriously anymore. In Rockland, uh, they, the Hatzala put out a warning. We know in other neighborhoods the numbers haven't gone up. And you're right. And I see kids coming out of yeshivas in the, in the schools themselves. They're required to wear them. But when they go out, everything gets off, and, and, you know, parents have to realize you're setting an example for your kids. Yep. Oh, and, yes. And, and you know, we could have a third round. There are, as I said, we don't know. And people who assume because they have antibodies, but it doesn't mean you can't be a carrier. Yeah. It doesn't mean you can't affect uh, others. And people who get it a second time, it's, the numbers aren't big yet, but... They seem to be increasing. And there's even a, a debate now if someone who's vaccinated could still be a carrier of it. So you have to be extra careful no matter what the you situation is. You see, Haber Knesset, um, who, Eichler, who was vaccinated nine days ago, came down with it. Oh, boy. Yeah, they said you need 14 days in order to... Um it, it, likely you need 14 days in order for it to kick mm. in. Wow, unbelievable. Day nine. So I, yesterday I read about somebody on day five and didn't realize day nine somebody had gotten it. Um, the rumor is, and I know it's impossible, but I'm going to ask anyway because I'm so hopeful, and I want to be hopeful. The rumor is that if Israel continues at this rate, that once Pesach ends, early Pesach this year, I remind everybody, so let's say for argument's sake, you know, Pesach ends and it's around April 1st, or certainly the first week in April, uh, around that time, Israel will be ready to announce that tourism can open up, and because testing is so extensive, They'd be able to continue with the majority of Israelis being vaccinated by that point, and obviously tourists expected to either be vaccinated or uh, to um, provide proof of an of a negative test. That would be amazing for the hotels. Obviously, I know they'd rather be open before Pesach. I get it, but it'd be amazing if they could get a real start on the summer season. Do you, do you think that that kind of timetable? What what you read and see does it look like that's realistic? Around that time that there could be, uh, you know, staged openings. And, um, again, we have to see how the, the performance is over the next uh, couple of uh, months. And hopefully, you know, w- w- with the election coming, that that won't interfere. It shouldn't. It should be a bigger incentive to show a, a positive uh, rate of inoculation and right. good results. Because uh, whoever's going to be running is going to use this. This is obviously going to be very um, critical to people's minds, along with the economy and the other ramifications of this. You're right that many hotels are going to have to see, where some may not even reopen, like restaurants here and hotels here, who are in very serious uh, situations, uh, financial situations, and, but uh, I've heard, you know, the same discussions, and we'll see. Pesach ends in Israel April 3rd, Shvishal Pesach, Pesach ends in Israel April 3rd would be amazing if they can get a start in the summer season immediately uh, thereafter. All right, you mentioned the election. Uh, I don't know who's left and who isn't. Seems like people are dropping out of parties right and left. Uh, by the way, just just logistically, I mean, I guess by the end of March, if we're making these predictions that hopefully things will start opening up gradually, I'm assuming that the system of voting will not be affected, right? Campaigning may still be affected, especially over the next month or so. But the system of voting will likely not be affected, right? By then, hopefully, people will actually be able to go to the polls and do what, they, what, they, what they've done now, you know, three prior times in the last two years and just cast their ballots. 
uh, that's uh, it's a safe assumption, I guess, right now, but we don't know. And, and Israel innovates, so they may be able to come up with a way right, that true. people will be able to drop off ballots or make an appointment to come in and vote. Um, you know, they've had so much experience. They have a lot of expertise in holding elections. Um, and, you know, we will... You're right that the parties are really, it's quite remarkable to see people switching, people dropping out, people coming in uh, who will drop out. Uh, ultimately, there will be some clarification of the fields as, as you know, we get closer to the election and people see the realities and what the prospects are. Uh, but it seems that the election is really more about pro NATBB than, uh, as, you know, some elections here have been about in, in the individuals running. Only one of the individuals, the other is just there, but it's, um, you know, it's um, it's a very tr- a transient period right now in Israeli politics. Someone made the point to me that, I mean, I think you basically said this, but now everyone's writing it, uh, that the, you know, the, the left is gone, and basically it's an election between center-left, between center-right and right. Someone said it's exactly the opposite here in the United States, that here it looks like the trend is that, you know, the, the, the future of power in this country is between the left and center-left, and in Israel it's between the right and center-right. Do you think that's a, a good comparison? Well, it's, a, it's an apt analysis. I think that the the left in Israel um, has not shown real vibrancy, and the uh, look at the Labor Party, they, know, they, they believe it won't even make the cut. Now, maybe that under new leadership and revitalizing some of it um, here, uh, I think that, you know, the pendulum attempts to swing from one side to the other. And so in off-year elections, so in two years, the prediction is that the Republicans will do better because they it's that bad. It has been in the pattern of the past. Right. I don't know that that's true. I think that we have new patterns being established. And we have very deep divisions. The country is almost evenly split, as we saw in this election. But we've lost the political center. And this is something I've talked about for a long time on this show, warning based on the lessons of Europe, that we see the political center, which is where most Jews feel comfortable, center-right, center-left, center-center, but that we see the radicalization and and more and more extremism being introduced to extreme left, extreme right. Uh, often with strong tinges of anti-Semitism in some of their messaging and um, pronouncements. So we're in a, it is a very different political environment. You know, someone told me, that I think it's obvious, unless the polls are completely wrong, uh, that it's basically 50-50 for Tuesday in Georgia, uh, the way things are right mm-hmm. now. It's really close. Someone told me that the Jewish vote, if you poll the Jewish vote in Georgia would also be 50-50. Is it surprising to you? It would be surprising. Uh, But again, you know, the media highlights some of the, you know, what they want to highlight. So you don't know really where Amcha is. Uh, There's concern about some of the candidates, some of their pronouncements. There are uh, about several of the candidates, in fact, on both sides. There have been all sorts of articles written about uh, they've said or done. Uh, you know, and, and and people. The real problem here is today people have lost faith. They lost trust in media, in government. They don't believe what what people say, what the reporters say. What uh, you know, there's no Walter Cronkite uh, phenomenon as it was in his day. Uh, and then you have the you know every kind of conspiracy theory possible being being thwarted on on the internet and being imposed on people. It's and some of it. 
which I have been following now very closely through friends who are working on this uh, very extensively. I mean, there's so much anti-Semitism and so much anti-Israel stuff that's being promulgated. Uh, and now with this tremendous focus of the, the amount of money that will be spent in, in Georgia, its economy will have done very well. <laughs> so maybe it's a message. You hold elections, you make money. <laughs> do they, the, do they make money? a tremendous <laughs> investment in influx of funds. Do they make money in Israel when they continue to hold elections? That could be the answer why it keeps happening. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes. The answer is only the uh, pollsters and the uh, pundits make money. But, uh, you know, elections are them. very expensive. And, you know, this new election, and that's part of the anger of people at a time when the economy is where it is to spend, you know, millions and millions, hundreds of millions of shekels, not billions. I was going to say those who make the lawn signs and bumper stickers make money. But the way you've described the recent Israeli elections, probably people won't even be engaged in this stuff till a week before. Like, I don't even know if they'll pay attention to it in the month of January and February. Well, they're paying attention because of the of the jockeying that's going on and trying to predict who who's going to come in. You know, when Eisenkot was seen as uh, adding so much to it, now he announces and and being courted by I think three parties, and then he announces he's not coming to any party. So there's so many interesting manifestations uh, of this to see how. Um, uh, you know the, the BB phenomenon. Remember the longest-serving prime minister. Right. Whether he, he and it's not impossible for him to pull it off again. You know, people were writing his political obituaries. Have learned learned the lesson many times in the past. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, you know, originally, and, and I and I think you agreed with this when we discussed it. Um, all the new countries, those countries that want to have normal ties and uh, normalization with Israel. We assume the deadline, or at least I assume, the deadline would be January 20th. And now, the more I read about it, the more it seems that it's irrelevant to some of these countries down the road who's in power in the U.S. And that they, they, completely, they can completely ignore Washington as long as they feel it's time to move ahead with Israel. Are you getting that feeling as well, that there's really no January 20th deadline for any country to uh, propose normalization with Israel? I honestly believe that January 20th looms very large over the relationships. Some of them are moving ahead and some of them will move ahead, but others are just waiting to see and are reluctant to make bold moves uh, because of the change in administrations and waiting to see whether they can uh, use it as negotiating leverage in some cases, um, in other cases because they want to see what the message is from the new administration. Uh, so I do think it has an impact on most of the countries involved and on the uh, and in some cases to Israel's benefit if they believe that the U.S. will be less engaged, that the U.S. presence will be reduced, then Israel looms all that much larger in the battle against Iran and extremism and terrorism, et cetera. Uh, so I think that it's there is hesitancy on the part of some to do some some of the things that have been talked about. I don't think all of the speculation is correct that some of the countries mentioned are really not in the, in the place to do this. But when even Turkey's Erdogan now has said that he wants to improve relations with Israel, I wouldn't put too much stock in it yet. But uh, even the fact that uh, that there's murmurings and there's supposedly, I think, the head of the foreign ministry visited Israel, um, maybe it's a, it's a reading of reality because he continues to support Hamas. He continues all the anti-Israel rhetoric. He continues to to liken Israel to the Nazis and the, I mean the people in this government. So uh, you know, there's no immediate transformation that's going on there. There's speculation that the new president, as of January 20th, or the new Congress, frankly, depending on what happens in Georgia 
could eliminate some of the diplomatic sweeteners. I think that was the Jerusalem Post term uh, that have been promised to Morocco, Sudan, the UAE, and money and weapons, etc. Do you think, in fact, that sort sort of like his threat with the Iran deal, that he's ready to go right back in, that Joe Biden or others in Washington could use their influence to eliminate some of the things promised to these countries in exchange for normalization? I mean, there is that speculation. I think you have to go country by country and look at what are the issues, whether they, you know, they've talked about being tougher on Egypt and Saudi Arabia, for instance, on the human rights issues. There's been talk about uh, the Sahara issue. Um, could they? Yes, they could. Uh, we would be, I hope they will do it very cautiously and there won't be, you know, there won't be an effort that, that undoes some of the commitments that have been made, which were contingent i think to in some cases on these uh these gestures and and concessions so you know we'll have to see what the new administration they have not given a hint yet as to what it is and i think there's a lot of speculation not necessarily based on facts uh, i saw the, the, the um, jake sullivan the new national security advisor gave a lengthy interview 15 minutes or so it was npr but didn't mention israel and the in these issues so in dealing with foreign policy, look, China is going to be a huge issue. Russia is going to be a huge issue. There are, I'll give you just one example that people not don't focus on all the ramifications, and I hope the administration will be able to, and that is, you know, Russia is getting into South America. Turkey and Iran are there. China is there. There We see a turn back to the Maduro and the, you know, the old Chavez uh, uh, period, uh, and that's a direct threat being so close to the United States. We see big changes in the Middle East, and especially vis-a-vis Iran, and, uh, et cetera. So the agenda is very heavy. Uh, hopefully the positive moves that have been taken will continue to be encouraged. Two more things. The United States says it will not stand by. And as the murderer of Daniel Pearl is released, is, is there really practically anything the U.S. could do at this point? Well, they could bring charges as an American citizen. There are ways... Um, but the Pakistani government, so officials have said that they are looking for a way to retry them on on charges. Um, you know, all of a sudden, it's a democracy where the courts are independent. Uh, think, <laughs> yeah, know, unfortunately. That, uh, but it is an intolerable situation, uh, especially given the brutal nature of the murder. And as you know, I knew Daniel Pearl, and he had been very helpful to us in circumstances that will one day describe in, in Iran. Uh, and, you know, he died proudly as a Jew with his last words being about his grandfather and, yeah. and the street name for him. And, his, and um, those of you who don't know the episode is from 2002. Google Daniel Pearl. It's an important story to know. Right. And an inspiring story for yeah. in his last days, uh, his last minutes. You know, but I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I think that the, you know, there are probably avenues to to do it or to try and try him or. Whatever. So difficult, and it takes years usually. I don't want to describe all the possible uh, uh, options, but Un- there are. Understood. Um, ju- justice comes in many ways, right? Right. Um, you know, Malcolm, I was just thinking that one of the, seriously, one of the terrible things about COVID, and there are a lot of terrible things, I, I would assume, and I thought of this as you were just talking about, you know, all the different situations, China, Russia, etc. I would assume that if not for COVID under under the same circumstances, meaning, you know, the election went the way it did, you probably would have met with Joe Biden at some point between Election Day and now. 
and to express some of the things that you just told us about China, Russia, Israel, etc., and, you know, some really important things. And the fact that, and you know what the importance of face-to-face meetings are, I don't have to tell you, and the fact that, that, that that's not happening, that representatives of our community and, and, and Israel lovers like yourself can't, you know, at this point, sit down and have a frank conversation, it, it, that's got to be a bad drawback. It is, and it's frustrating in, in some respects. I mean, I have had communication with people who will be in the new administration, and I've known Joe Biden for more than 40 years, right. and I met with him very regularly when he was vice president and his earlier time when he was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. Um, so, yes, that is frustrating, and a couple of the people you appointed have been, have been close to us over the years, right. even though we've had disagreements on things like Iran. And, by the way, I think people should note about the two B-52 bombers that went down the Persian Gulf, flew from North Dakota there and back. It's funny, I was going to end with asking you to explain the the whole Iranian attack of the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad and what the current, I assume that's why the B-52s are there, right? That is one of the reasons why they are there, but it's the anniversary, the first anniversary of the killing of of uh, Soleimani mm. is coming up, and they're threatening both Hezbollah and Iran have been threatening revenge of all sorts, and at the same time expressing warnings because they're afraid that uh, they could be the, um, the, uh, the warning. By the way, it, it, just to go back one second on the Pakistan issue, we saw in Argentina where where Carlos uh, Teledin, who was accused of making the car bomb that, that blew up at the Amia building and killed 185 people and more in 1994, was also the court released him, um, dropped the charges against him. Uh, so, uh, I mean, there are uh, other cases, and as you said, with the, with the tremendous overload of issues that we are facing now, you know, we're working on the Shrita in, in, in Europe issue, and now with the courts in Europe, while we were not on the air, um, came down, and, and, and the danger there is that it becomes Europe-wide. People don't even know how many countries in Europe ban Shrita um, uh, today. And the, the um, uh, you know, the statistics, when we talk about Israel, that 81% drop in tourism uh, to Israel because so this year, because of COVID. Mm-hmm. So its implications are... are um, are so broad, and and I and, and I just cite these things because we we tend to lose sight of so many issues, and I understand it completely. And people are on overload, yeah. uh, being at home, etc. But you know, Hezbollah announced that they have twice the number of guided missiles with the PGM, you know, precision guided missiles. Uh, Nasrallah said they can cover all of Israel, and and the and Soleimani and Iran has been making pretty blatant. Uh, statements, whereas the one hand demanding that America just return to the without precondition to the deal, and the other hand threatening you know repercussions whether it would be directly against U.S. U.S. targets abroad uh, in the region uh, against the allies of the United States, and the presence of these two strategic bombers was meant to be a message. Also, we had a submarine that could launch nuclear missiles in in the I think the first time in ten years in, in the Gulf. And we had, um, uh, we know that Iran has been talking about planning attacks against U.S. allied targets. Iraq would be a primary place, and, and that is, figures largely, and you know they've had rockets attacks against the compound where the U.S. embassy is, and the U.S. said they were going to pull out. We've reduced our presence there, uh, and that could 
very well continue uh, if they continue to be under assault. But Iran's goal, and it's through Iran's allied militias that they are trying to drive uh, these forces out of uh, U.S. forces out, and so they keep up this policy of harassment and uh, and these attacks. In the meantime, we see that in Syria, you know, their targets came under uh, at least 50 attacks in in uh, by the IAF, the Israeli Air Force, uh, and that the that in the last couple of days there were very serious attacks against the. Uh, a guided missile plant and against other targets in, in Syria. And the parties themselves are in greater conflict, Russia, Turkey, Iran, and the Syrians themselves. We have so many situations in flux, and Iran then tries to always exploit any situation of tension. But in the region or in the Gulf, now in a much bigger area, Turkey the same, and the United States can't afford to withdraw from from the region, we are too critical to it. We know the price we've paid in the past, uh, so we will look for any signals and messages to see how the new administration will will address it. Remember, uh, um, Mr. Biden was uh, chairman of foreign relations, was very involved in these issues, and I, I don't think that it'll you know the domestic agenda and obviously COVID and the economy will be priorities as we've seen, but. Hopefully they will address these issues as well. Yeah, let's hope. It's a different time also, so he may address it a lot differently than he would have 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, Malcolm, I thank you. Speak uh, Bezrat Hashem next week. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Good Shabbos, and everybody be safe. Amen to that. Uh, JM in the AM, Friday morning broadcast. Malcolm Holine is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM in the AM.